Welcome to Light and Shadow, a podcast about the complex themes presented in the horror genre. Much like the campfire stories of old, horror takes us into the dark corners of the world. It challenges us to face reality and confront our fears. So come, gather around the fire. Together, we'll explore what horror has to offer and venture off the beaten path. I'm your host, Nicole, and it's time to share another dark tale. Baloney Thief, written by Humboldt Lycanthrop. Although there is no internet access or even cell phone service in this tiny cabin where I sit typing, perched on a cliff high above the Pacific Ocean, still I write this blog in the hopes that it might find some new civilization long after mankind is gone. That this may be a testament to one who found faith and religion after doubting for so long. You see, I was never a spiritual or superstitious person. I was a believer in science, a student, a marine biologist. Before this, I had never had what one would call faith in anything resembling religion. To me, it was all math, everything. The strange mutations of life were simply an exponential progression of evolution. But now, as I see the sacramental fires burning bright on the beach below me and feel the awakening of the ancients echo in my sleep and dreams, now that I realize that humanity's time is over and it is a new beginning for beings much greater and more powerful than our own, I offer up a poem, a sacrament a narrative to the events that unfolded before the Great Awakening. Let me start at the beginning. I was a doctoral student at the University of California, Santa Cruz, working on my PhD in marine biology. Mollusks were my specialty, specifically red abalone. Abalone are an edible type of sea snail, a marine mollusk, single-shell gastropod found in coastal waters around the globe. Like all snails, they have a head with a mouth and a pair of eyes, and a foot which they use to cling to rock formations while using their file-like tongue to scrape algal matter into their mouths. They also have an enlarged pair of tentacles. They are considered a delicacy, their flesh being compared to calamari. Red abalone, the largest and most prized of the species, are found only on the west coast of North America. Red abalone are not endangered, but because of overfishing and acidification of oceans, they have become rather scarce. That is why California put a ban on the commercial fishing of them in the 1990s. They can be harvested for personal use only north of San Francisco, April through November, with a hiatus in July, and with a limit of only three a day and a total of 18 a year. 
Since I was writing my doctoral thesis on abalone, it was deemed that I should spend the summer in a tiny fishing village called Shelter Cove. There, I would study, measure, count, and map the abalone, and also report any suspicious activities relating to abalone poachers to the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. So when the school semester ended in June, I packed up all my gear, scuba set, books, slides, specimen jars, microscopes, and strapped my kayak to the roof of my trusty old Subaru Outback and headed north up Highway 101 for Shelter Cove. Shelter Cove is a quiet little community on the coast of Humboldt County. The sign as you enter declares it an island in time. There is only one long winding road in, which climbs up to nearly 2,000 feet as it transcends the summit of the King Range Mountains. And conversely, only that one twisting, dangerous, cliff-strewn road out. To the south is nothing but inaccessible shoreline facing steep cliffs, dotted with pockets of tiny beaches where the surf smashes down on jagged rocks and deep, dangerous tide pools. To the north, it is relatively the same, only a thin, potholed dirt road winding over the cliffs slightly to the east. This is why this area is known as Humboldt's Lost Coast. The brave surf and kayak here, but it has a notorious riptide and once an entire troop of tired Boy Scouts resting on the beach were swooped up by a sleeper wave and sucked out to their deaths in the ocean's depths. The lodgings that were given to me consisted of a small cabin, nothing more than a shack really, perched high up on a cliff face. To the right, I could see the boat launch the fishermen used, the caged in area where they gutted their catch. A small stretch of beach lay there where locals would drive their pickup trucks onto the sandy shore and drink beer and barbecue. To my left was another stretch of beach they called Dead Man's, separated from the boat landing by a jutting cliff. Dead Man's, a favorite surf spot, is only accessible by the ocean. The surfers have to paddle on their boards around the cliff face to get there. The only internet access in Shelter Cove is from satellite and the university was way too cheap to put one up in the shack they had supplied me with. I couldn't even get cell phone service to use my phone as a hotspot. So when I had to post my data on the university's science lab website, I would have to travel down the road a few miles to a coffee shop in the lobby of an old hotel that had Wi-Fi. There, I could also manage to get cell phone service, but only in the parking lot at the top of a steep embankment. My closest neighbors lived down a rutted dirt road. A young single mom and her nine-year-old girl, Susie. On my first day, as I was unfastening my ocean kayak from the roof of my battered old Subaru Outback, Susie rode right up to me on her pink huffy bike, an inquisitive look on her round little face. She asked me who I was. I told her. She asked me about my equipment, and I explained about my scuba gear, specimen jars, and microscopes that helped me examine the abalone. Susie told me she didn't like abalone or any other seafood, because she doesn't like anything that is slimy, stinky, slippery, wet, or gross. I laughed at her response, finding it very ironic since she lives in a fishing village. And then she rode off on her little bike. 
After that day, whenever Susie rode past on her bike and saw me, she would stop and talk. Though she claimed to hate slimy stuff. Ooh, she'd squill. Get it away when I held up a baby squid for her inspection. She soon fell prey to the wonders of nature, marveling over a sea urchin or laughing uproariously at the awkward antics of a huge dungeness crab I had brought back from the ocean for her amusement. Her big brown eyes would gleam and her pigtails would bob up and down as she stroked a starfish. I showed her the tiny holes in the mantle of the abalone's thick dome shell, the respiratory apertures, and explained to her how the sea snail vented water through them with its gills. She stared into the microscope at microalgae and I explained how the abalone fed on them with the small median teeth of the rodula. As her enthusiasm began to grow, I sensed a future marine biologist in the making and grew to truly love her visits. I quickly settled into a routine of waking early and taking my kayak out to dive. Even though it was summer and the water was cold, averaging about 50 degrees, I had to wear a full wetsuit with hood and gloves. I would pull my hood over my head, pull down my half mask, put my regulator's mouthpiece to my lips, and slip into the murky water to explore the underwater rock formations with my flashlight, looking for the domed, brick-red shells that are the underwater homes of the abalone who had suctioned themselves to the craggy surfaces. I would count and measure them, and then return to my kayak to scrawl out my findings. It was peaceful work, but it could be dangerous. Every year, dozens of abalone divers wash up dead on the shores, smashed against the rocks by a swell or sucked into dark ocean caves. In 2004, an abalone diver, who ironically worked for the Recreational Fishing Alliance and was on a federal fisher management panel, was attacked by a great white shark while diving not too far south from here, off the coast of Mendocino. When his friends first saw the huge cloud of blood in the water, they thought it was some kind of sick joke. They were gravely mistaken. His mauled and ravaged body washed up on the shore a day later. In the evenings, I would type out my statistics on my laptop, their average depth and proximity to the shore, and in my free time, I would wander the desolate shoreline, exploring the tide pools while I sipped a local microbrew. I'd gaze up at the sky, streaked in pink and purple as the sun sunk down into the ocean, watching pelicans beat their wings in unison as the high-pitched wails of young harbor seals echoed off the towering bluffs. I was happy. As happy as I've ever been. By my third week, I had charted the entire shoreline for over half a mile. At the end of the first month, I had made enough inroads with the notoriously secretive locals to be invited to a party. It was a wild event held on a sprawling manor that sat on a grassy hillside with the ocean spread out below it. It was the last day of June and there would be a month long hiatus for all abalone harvesting all of July so the abalone divers were throwing a feast. There was abalone wontons, abalone salsa, two kinds of abalone ceviche, abalone sausage, but the most scrumptious was the abalone wrapped in dates, goat cheese, bacon, and deep fried. All of this, as well as the standard fare of salmon, halibut, cod, and oysters. 
Bottles of wine from nearby vineyards littered the tables and ruddy-faced fishermen gathered around kegs of local microbrew. The sheriff was there in full uniform and when someone passed him a joint, he puffed it and passed it on like everyone else. A week into July, I noticed a massive amount of abalone missing off the point of dead man's. Abalone congregate where current flow causes drift seaweed to accumulate. The point of dead man's was one of those places. Because abalone expand a large amount of energy when moving, they tend to stay in one location. Last week, the point of dead man's had been littered with abalone. Now, there wasn't a single one left. I shone my flashlight along the submerged rocks. Nothing. I reached my hand into a narrow crevice felt around the deep fissure for the telltale feel of those thick shells, cautious and aware that a swell could suck me into the narrow space, crush my bones, wedge me in, and trap me. Even if there wasn't a moratorium on abalone fishing going on, an absence of this size was unprecedented. This had to have been some kind of large-scale poaching. In San Francisco, dried abalone sells as an aphrodisiac for $2,000 a pound. A haul this big could easily net over half a million dollars. First, I alerted the fish and game department. Next, figuring that the poachers, after having exhausted the supply on the point, would now move down into Dead Man's Cove itself, and that they would most likely come in the early twilight hours, I decided to stake out Dead Man's Beach to see if I could catch the poachers when they returned. The only way accessible to Dead Man's Cove is over the ocean. So I hauled my kayak out to the boat launch, slipped it into the dark water, waves lapping at the concrete pier, jumped in and paddled out. There was a full moon, but the fog was rolling in thick across the relatively calm water. I kayaked past the beach where a few pickup trucks were still parked, surfers relaxing on the shore and having a few beers after a day of riding the waves, and made my way around the towering point of Dead Man's, carefully avoiding the crescent of jagged rocks that rose up out of the black water and fog. Paddling into the small cove, I rode the surf up onto the beach. Pulling my kayak across the black, pebbly sand to the cliff face, I found a small cave, nothing more than a craggy wrinkle in the bluff, and tucked my kayak into it, camouflaging it with driftwood, dried seaweed, and a few handfuls of sand. With my kayak hidden, I hiked down to the beach, and behind a large, washed-up tree stump, I set my small, one-person tent. I hunkered down for the night, staying awake for a good while, but then drifting off to a light slumber, determined to sleep lightly and awaken as early as I could. In the middle of the night, I awoke to a garbled noise. I at first assumed it was the yapping of sea lions, but as sleep left me, I realized it was human voices. It sounded like they were singing or chanting. I poked my head out of my tent. The entire beach was now draped in a thick shroud of fog, but when I peered out into the distance, I was startled to see a mass of orange flames flicking up into the night sky. 
It was a huge bonfire, and silhouetted around it appeared to be a circle of people. Was I dreaming? I blinked my eyes and focused on the fire, and yes, around the fire was a ring of people in black, hooded cloaks. They held hands and slowly circled around the flames, chanting, with the fog swirling around them. On the outside of the circle, there were others, also in dark cloaks, remaining still as statues, holding torches. They couldn't see me, hidden in the fog behind the massive log, and I watched curiously. It was definitely strange, but I assumed it was a bunch of teenagers getting weird, or maybe even a coven of old hippie Wiccans getting their witch on. Either wouldn't be unheard of in these parts. I watched the strange ritual for over an hour till they were done. Then they responsibly put out their fire, burying its smoldering remains in the sand, and wandered up into a ravine where a trail took them up the cliffside. So there was a way to Dead Man's Cove besides the ocean. I would have to scope out that trail when I got a chance. Maybe the abalone thief used it to get to the beach. Since the strange cultists, or whatever they were, had not waded out into the ocean or given any sign of abalone poaching, I paid them no real mind. Live and let live, right? Just a bunch of kooks getting weird. I had often heard that Humboldt County was a weird place and that Southern Humboldt even weirder. I waited all day on the beach for any sign of poachers, eating trail mix and dried fruit, but saw nothing. When the sun set and the sky began to grow dark, I packed up my tent and retrieved my kayak. I had been on the beach for over 24 hours and had seen no sign of the abalone thief. I pushed my kayak out into the surf, jumped in, and paddled back around to the point. That night, even though I was exhausted from my little expedition, I was restless and unable to sleep, tossing and turning in my bed. I went outside onto the cliff edge and drank a whiskey to calm my nerves. A slight breeze stirred the leaves of the manzanita and dune tansy that lined the cliff edge, the salty smell of sea heavy in the air. It was then I noticed that from up here, I could just make out a fire burning on dead man's below me, tiny silhouettes of circling acolytes around it. I could even make out the torchbearers that encircled the group. They were back, the weirdos. Probably just a bunch of local goth kids. The whiskey was doing its trick and I yawned, feeling exhaustion take over. That night, I had the first of the dreams. I dreamed I was in the ocean, deep underwater, beneath the waves, examining the abalone. I ran my finger over their hard outer shell, imagining their fimbriated headlobes, their columnar muscle. It was breeding time and I could see their respiratory apertures venting into the ocean's water column. In the dream, I had no scuba gear. I didn't need it. It felt as if I had some sort of gills for I could feel the salty water swooshing in and out of me as it churned cold and green. Full of fascination, I studied the formations of rock and shell as a hand, almost human, 
crept over the craggy shelf. It was covered in pale green scales and the tips of the fingers ended in black claws. It reached out and took hold of an abalone's blood-red shell and slowly peeled it off the rock. The slime trail the sea snail uses to move, leaving a viscous, oozing stain. I gazed in wonder as a humanoid head then rose up over the rocky ledge. A face with the features of a fish. Gills, small holes where the nose should be. Massive, black, empty eyes. I stared on as the creature put the abalone to its mouth and with fanged teeth pulled the sea snail slowly out of its shell and began chomping on it, swallowing it in quick gulps. When it was done, it extended a long, thin black tongue, forked like the tongue of a snake, and licked the empty shell clean. So this is the abalone thief, I thought to myself, with the calm and calculating mind of a scientist without any fear whatsoever. Then I saw, out in the murky distance of the ocean floor, more. There were more of them, hundreds of them, maybe even thousands of them. An army of these scaled sea creatures, feeding on the abalone, gaining sustenance to strengthen themselves, preparing for something. I awoke, bathed in sweat, shivering, unable to dislodge the strange dream from my mind. The dream was bizarre, silly, Obviously, it had no bearing on reality. Sea creatures poaching the abalone? But something within me felt different, very unscientific. For the first time in my life, I felt an inexplicable spirituality, an awareness of a higher power or a higher being. I also felt very, very scared, though I couldn't say why. The next day, I searched for the path that led to Dead Man's. I realized that from my cabin, I could walk along the cliff edge, between the clumps of coyote bush and dune tansy, down a hill into a gully that eventually formed into a steep, rocky ravine. Following this ravine down into a small valley, I found the trail. Nothing more than a deer or elk path, really. On an impulse, I decided to stake it out that night to watch and see if that strange group appeared again. Just to check them out for curiosity's sake and see what they were up to. If I could identify any of them, maybe I could question them about the abalone thief. See if they had any good intel on boats or strangers coming or going from the beach. That night, sure enough, As I crept down to the ravine, I could see the fire burning on the beach below. I positioned myself off the trail and above the cove, just close enough to see the beach fairly well with my binoculars. I crouched down and put the binoculars to my eyes. I could see that they were holding hands around the fire again, slowly rotating, most likely chanting the strange mumbo-jumbo I had heard last night. I tried to make out their faces to see if I could catch anyone I recognized, but their hoods obscured them, and all I could see were dark shadows where their faces should be. 
I scanned the gathering and noticed something going on off to the side, some sort of commotion against the cliff wall. Two hooded figures were holding a struggling figure by its arms. I focused my binoculars and what I saw made my mouth go dry and my gut clench. It was Susie. They were holding little Susie and she was naked, naked and struggling. This couldn't be. Then, as I watched helplessly above, they pulled her toward the fire. It took four of those cloaked maniacs to hold the squirming girl down as another, this one's robes a crimson red, raised what must have been a knife above her for it glinted in the moonlight, long and pointed. I froze. What should I do? What could I do? There had to be at least a dozen of them down there. Then it all happened so quickly. Then I fell, and I thought I could hear that little voice I knew so well cry out in pain and go silent. Little Susie's pale body fell limp and crumpled onto the sand. I had to do something. I spun around and clawed myself up the ravine, and as I did, my foot slipped, and I sent a shower of pebbles and dirt down into the mist-covered gully. I froze, my mouth dust-dry, clinging to the rock face. Had they noticed? With a pounding heart, I started back up. Once I got to the top, I sprinted over the bluffs to my Subaru, now out of breath and huffing. Fumbling with the keys, I started the engine and sped down the road. I squealed into the parking lot of the Inn of the Lost Coast, leapt out of my car, and with sweaty, shaky hands dialed 911 on my phone. When I told the operator what had happened and where I was, she transferred me to the sheriff. I frantically told the sheriff what I had seen, and he told me to calm down. He found it hard to believe a girl had been murdered. He found it even harder to believe she had been murdered by a cult, wearing hoods, on the beach. He asked me to stay calm and go home and told me he would stop by once he had gotten it all sorted out. I couldn't believe how nonchalant the sheriff was being, but what could I do? I would just have to do what he said, go back to my cabin, and wait for him. I stared down at my phone, knowing if I left this one small spot of land, it would be rendered useless. I would be cut off from the rest of the world, alone. But what could I do? He was the sheriff. Even if I was unsure of his trustworthiness, he was the sheriff and I had no choice but to listen to him. So I drove back to my cabin and waited. I looked out over the cliff face, but I couldn't see the fire burning anymore. I drank a whiskey, tried to go over my data, but I was too shaken up. My hands shook so bad I couldn't even manage to type numbers into the keyboard of my laptop. Suddenly, there was a knock at the door that startled me. Shook me to the bone, if I'm being honest. I found myself wishing I had just hightailed it out of here earlier, 
driven away down the long winding road that was the only way in or out, never to come back. I crept up to the door and cautiously pulled the curtain of the window back. Peeking out the window, I saw the sheriff standing at my doorstep with Susie's mother and a little girl. I tentatively pulled the door open. The sheriff impatiently asked me if this girl was the girl I saw murdered. I gazed at the little girl before me, a girl the same age and height as Susie with similar hair, but definitely not Susie. The girl, her mother, and the sheriff all seemed confused. The sheriff assured me that this girl was in fact Susie Anderson. I assured him that I saw the actual Susie Anderson murdered, which caused all three of the people standing at my door to become very upset. The girl and her mother stormed off, leaving only me and the sheriff. He accused me of being on drugs and gave my tiny cabin a skeptical glance. I asked him if he investigated the scene at the beach and he claimed it appeared as if a bunch of kids were having a party and that they lift beer cans everywhere. I asked him if he knew about the secret trail leading down to the beach, and he informed me that I was an idiot and that everyone knew about that trail. I again insisted that I saw the group on the beach cut out the heart of an innocent child, and he told me one final time to drop it. The sheriff said, sometimes the light of the moon reflecting off the water combined with the sound and rhythm of the ocean, can play tricks on your mind. He told me he had seen many a good man go a little crazy out here. Apparently, Shelter Cove is known to have its share of crazies, and they didn't all start out that way. Before he left, the sheriff told me to get some rest. He offered to come back the next day after I had a chance to sleep on it, to talk about it some more. He said we might even take a little walk down to that beach. He said he'd like to take a walk with the scientist like me. Maybe I could tell him what some of that weird stuff in the tide pool is. How I fell asleep that night, I don't know. It was as if I had been drugged. I drank half a beer and a great lethargy fell over me. I stumbled to the bed with my eyes heavy and was asleep before my head hit the pillow. That night, the final dream came to me and I had a great realization. I was in the ocean with all the other deep ones, the cool salty water swooshing in and out of our gills the light of the moon sending out great shafts of pale light through the deep, murky water. We were harvesting abalone, eating some for our own strength, bringing back armfuls of others for the great one who slept out in the ocean depths, the dark lord who was awakening and who would soon rise in a fury of black leathery wings and tentacles.
The next day, the sheriff arrived at my house as he said he would. He brought with him a box. I opened it to find a large black hooded cloak. I slipped the cloak over my head, pulled up the hood, and together we walked down to the beach to start the fire and await the arrival of the others. Abalone Thief was written by Humboldt Lycanthrope and was adapted under an attribution share-alike 2.0 generic license. Some edits have been made. See the link in the show notes for the original story. Thanks for tuning in. You can find the show on Instagram and Facebook at Light and Shadow Pod. If you really love the show, you can sign up to become a supporter on Patreon for early access to all episodes and more. Please rate, review, and subscribe to help other people find the show. Until next time, stay spooky.